This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway reporting uh, for uh, Room Now from ACR 2022, and I'm coming at you virtually uh, from Dublin, Ireland. I'm here today to talk to you about an oral presentation um, on Monday. Uh, this was by Namrata Singh and colleagues. This was abstract number 2218. Um, and this was on frailty is associated with serious infections um, in biologic and TS demarge treated or a patients. Um, and the first thing we probably should explain in talking about this is, is what is uh, frailty? Um, and we all have a kind of a concept in our own heads, I suppose, of what a, a frail um, patient is. Probably the best way uh, to conceptualize it is an individual's ability to recover from unexpected stressors of any sort. So a frail individual is less able um, to recover uh, from these. Um, and a colleague of mine, uh, Sebastian Satoy, recently um, used the term bounce back ability for this, which I think is a really good uh, way of uh, describing uh, frailty. So a frail individual has less bounce back ability than a non-frail individual. So what um, Dr. Singh and colleagues did here, they used a market scan uh, database they had 62,246 RA patients treated with uh, biologic or TSDMARD. They found that frail patients had a higher risk of serious infections with an adjusted hazard ratio of 2.37. They then adjusted that adjusted hazard ratio further for comorbidity burden and healthcare utilization. And it decreased to 1.34, but remained significant. Frail individuals also had an increased risk of all infections with an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.18 and an increased risk of all cause hospitalization with an adjusted hazard ratio of uh, 1.34. So overall, I think what uh, these results are saying to us, it's not that we shouldn't be using um, these drugs in these frail individuals. Um, in fact, maybe we should, and they'd be better than the alternatives of, of steroids, um, as we have discussed extensively uh, previously. Um, but it gives us um, something to watch out for. If we have a frail individual, we need to be aware uh, of these potential risks um, and perhaps monitor them uh, more closely. And overall, I think this is really adding to the, the information on frailty in rheumatic diseases and how important it is um, as a prognostic marker um, in our patient uh, cohorts. So remember, uh, check out Room Now for all the updates from ACR 2022. And you can follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. Hi, it's Artie Kavanaugh, coming to you from ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia for Room Now. A lot of good abstracts, including abstracts about psoriatic arthritis. One that I'm going to talk about right now, abstract 1598, safety and efficacy of Ducravacitinib, an oral selective tyrosine kinase 2 or TIC2 inhibitor in patients with psoriatic arthritis, phase two, the results from a phase 2 study at 52 weeks. 
interesting abstract, I think because of some of the measures and also some of the design issues. So in this study, two different doses of ducrevacitinib were compared with placebo and did much better in all the different domains of psoriatic arthritis. For the patients who had not reached minimal disease activity, they then were treated with ustekinumab, as were the patients who received placebo. As I said, of course, in the original part that was reported, the blinded part, uh, people did better. 25% of the ducrevacitinib patients achieved minimal disease activity, or MDA, which is one of our goals in psoriatic arthritis. All the patients then were switched to treatment with ustekinumab, an approved inhibitor of IL-1223 that we use in psoriatic arthritis and our colleagues in dermatology use in psoriasis. The people who stayed on ducrevacitinib sustained their response through the rest of the year, through week 52. Good levels of response, a little bit of an increase, and a low level of the PASTAS, which was also included as an outcome in this study. Patients who were switched to the use to kinemab did show improvement, although the levels of improvement were not as high as those who had achieved MDA in the initial part of the study. So I think there are several aspects of this that are worth noting. It's great to have newer therapies for psoriatic arthritis, a lot of interest in TIC2 inhibition as questions come about whether it may be different and how it would be different from the other JAK inhibs. And I think unique aspects of a study design, we like a switching to an alternative mechanism and of course the use of another instrument, the PASDES. So a lot of good information here and things that I think will be useful to us in the clinic. So with that, thank you very much. This is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR 22 for Room Now. Hi, it's Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia. It's been a very busy meeting a lot of interesting papers, as always, and it's good to be back in person, to be able to interact with people. The abstracts I'd like to cover are in psoriatic arthritis. One I'm gonna present right now is a late breaker, late breaker 02, and this is from the Be Optimal study. This was a study of bimikizumab, the IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor, compared with adalimumab and then also with placebo. So it's an interesting study that we're uh, we like. It's not powered strictly to be a head-to-head -head study, but we are able to compare the data. At 16 weeks, what we saw was that the, the uh, bimikizumab and the adalimumab arm were superior to the placebo. We had seen those data before. At 16 weeks, the bimikizumab 160 milligram group continued. The adalimumab group switched to the bimikizumab at week 16, as did the placebo group. Then they were followed out over time. Interestingly, uh, at the endpoint of the study, the ACR50 response is pretty similar. 54.5, 50, and 53 across the, the original bimikizumab group, the original adalimumab group, and the original placebo group, all of whom are on bimikizumab now. And the MDA responses very nice, 55%, 53%, and 53.7%. So I think these studies, I love studies that give us the ability to kind of take a look at different 
mechanisms of action. Uh, I think we're looking at appropriate goals like minimal disease activity. And it's interesting data. I think with the bimikizumab, we have to see are there going to be differences to the other IL-17 inhibitors in terms of either efficacy or safety. So very interested in seeing additional data from this. It's a great presentation uh, at the ACR. And this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from Philadelphia, ACR 2022 Convergence for Room Now. Hello everyone. My name is Michelle Petrie. This is a Room Now hydroxychloroquine update from the American College of Rheumatology meeting. And you can see I'm going to cover a lot of different presentations. Let's start with a brief summary of why hydroxychloroquine should be background therapy in all lupus patients. And I've circled at the bottom. Please never forget this is the only medicine that improves the survival of people with lupus. And you can see that's been proven by multiple research groups, including my own. Our paper is the one headed by Deanna Hill. So I thought you'd be very interested in this study. This is from the Systemic Lupus International Collaborating Clinics cohort, which is an inception cohort. Natalie Costadoet-Shalomo, who pioneered checking hydroxychloroquine levels, looked at hydroxychloroquine levels, and she had to use serum, but she made a very simple correction to get them close to what a whole blood level would have shown. Now, in one of the figures shown in her presentation, you can see that with severe non-adherence, there's a difference in time to damage, but she also saw an increase in mortality. So you can add this to the many studies now that have proven an important reason why everyone should be on hydroxychloroquine, even if their skin and joint lupus is under good control. Don't stop it. But here's a study where the study itself was not about hydroxychloroquine, but then Murray Urowitz went up to the microphone and pointed out something very important that I had missed. So this is a study from April George. She's one of the you know, up and coming superb investigators in lupus who looks at big data sets. And she was actually presenting on the contemporary incidence of lupus nephritis from a large national data set. And what Dr. Urowitz pointed out was here under medication use, just see hydroxychloroquine, you know, 39% or less. And this is a, a database of people with insurance. There's no access to care issue here. So isn't this atrocious? In academic centers, you know, we, we won't be at 100% because some of our patients will have either intolerance, a true allergy, or will develop retinopathy. But most academic centers are going to be like 85, 90% hydroxychloroquine. Why isn't this message getting out into the community? So I wanted to remind you of some wisdom from C. Everett Koop one of our very interesting surgeon generals. 
And he was the one that said drugs don't work in patients who don't take them. And unfortunately, what's happened, I'm afraid, is because of the ophthalmology guidelines, people are being prescribed less hydroxychloroquine, not just that they're not prescribed it at all. So I wanted to remind you of a second very important finding from our group, which is that the prescribed hydroxychloroquine dose has nothing to do with the whole blood level, which is what determines efficacy. In the red line, you see 1,000 milligrams, which is our goal for the whole blood level. Not this five milligram per kilogram rule. We have to individualize it so that patients are getting an effective whole blood level. Now, here's the next abstract that I thought was really instructive. And this was supposed to be a bulimumab abstract. The goal being to show, as it did, that bulimumab reduces renal flares in the combined GSK database. But there was a very interesting finding, which is that hydroxychloroquine use reduced the risk of renal flare. You can see the hazard ratio went down to 0.66, and the p-value was very significant. Our group and others have shown that hydroxychloroquine use prevents or reduces later kidney damage. This may be one of the mechanisms. So hydroxychloroquine isn't all the lupus nephritis guidance documents. It needs to be bold print, I think. But there are concerns, and these are real concerns, about hydroxychloroquine in the heart. And so the first concern is hydroxychloroquine in that very rare adverse event of cardiomyopathy. Now here's a study of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and it's being done in both lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And in fact, hydroxychloroquine had a negative association with heart failure. So although there will be those rare cases of hydroxychloroquine cardiomyopathy, Overall, hydroxychloroquine is good for the heart muscle. What about QTC prolongation? Because you remember that came up during the COVID burst where hydroxychloroquine was being given when of course it turned out it didn't work, but along with the fact that COVID was in the heart and patients were on antibiotics that prolonged the QTC. Now, have we put this to rest? No, I don't think so. And so here is a study from one of my former lupus fellows. So I'm so glad to see her still involved in lupus research. And here's what they found. They did find quite a bit of prolonged QTC. They didn't find bad arrhythmias. And the mean dose of hydroxychloroquine was really quite low. It was 276. So their conclusion was QTC prolongation was increased with hydroxychloroquine users, but it did not reach statistical significance. Now, I think this is the study that has a really important take-home message, meaning it's gonna change how I practice this week. And that's that our patients are on so many drugs that prolong the QT. In particular, as you know, 30% of people with lupus also have depression. So in this presentation, you can see the multiple factors that prolong the QT. It's not just hydroxychloroquine. And you can see that 
cardiac disease in and of itself and cardiac manifestations, but there are antidepressants. So I think now that I'm going to change my practice, and if the person is on an antidepressant and HCQ, I will get a baseline EKG. Uh, before this presentation, I was sort of very laid back and not bothering to do EKGs. So every time I go to the ACR meeting, I learn something. I want to thank you for listening. I want to remind you that Room Now is there for you at the ACR, but every day of the year as well. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now virtually uh, from ACR 2022. And I'm here today to talk to you about an oral presentation um, on Monday uh, by Beth Wallace and colleagues. Uh, this was abstract number 2219. And this was the time dependent evaluation of gluc glucocorticoid um, exposure, duration, and uh, major cardiovascular events in rheumatoid arthritis. So this was a retrospective study using uh, the VA cohort. It had 19,000 um, RA patients um, included. The five-year MACE risk um, at baseline was a median of 5.3%. There were 20% of uh, the included patients who were at um, high risk of uh, MACE over five years. So this was a one-year study. Um, they had a six-month exposure period evaluating glucocorticoid use, and then they had a six-month um, period um, of follow-up after this um, to evaluate if um, MACE uh, or major cardiovascular events occurred. They used a weighted model with uh, time-varying covariates. Um, and very interesting findings, um, I would say. So they found compared to no steroid use, that if uh, patients used steroids for one to seven days, the risk or the odds of MACE was 1.54. If they used steroids for between eight and 90 days, the odds of MACE was 1.78. And if they used steroids for more than 90 days, the odds of MACE was 2.17. So an increasing trend, with increasing steroid use um, for increased risk of MACE. So again, I think this really confirms what we've all been saying, that steroids are bad in each and every way possible in rheumatoid arthritis, and we really should be endeavoring to limit their use as much as possible. And if this means going on to another effective agent, including a biologic drug, then that's uh, what we should do. That steroids being used as a, as a holding pattern um, in this disease, and in fact, in probably any rheumatic disease, is um, increasingly looking like um, a bad uh, approach uh, to treatment. Remember uh, to log in to Room Now for all the updates from ACR 2022 and follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. So hello everyone, my name is Peter Nash. I'm a professor of rheumatology at Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today we're talking about uh, one of the abstracts presented at uh, ACR Philadelphia, ACR Convergence. 
This is a European study. It was done in Poland and Czechoslovakia and Switzerland. It's called the Go Back Study, and it's looking at Axbar and terminating or tapering therapy. So it's a phase four study, but it's looking in particular at non-radiographic Axbar and asking the question that if you withdraw a TNF, in this instance it's golimumab, can patients, how many will flare and can you recapture them if they do? So they took patients who had active non-radiographic axial spar and these patients had disease of less than five years duration. They were under 45 years of age and they gave them open label golimumab monthly for 10 months. That was the first period of the study and they found that the significant number had inactive disease after 10 months. In fact, of the 323 that started, 188 were inactive after 10 months of treatment. So then they asked the question in the second period, those patients who were inactive, if we either continued full treatment monthly, tapered them to every two months, or gave them placebo, what would happen to their disease? And of those that fled, can you recapture them? So that was the primary endpoint, the percentage who didn't flare once you tapered their therapy and compared that to continuing full monthly dosing. So what happened? <clears throat> the monthly dosing, 84% of patients did not flare versus second monthly dosing, 68% of patients didn't flare and if you change them to placebo, 34% of patients didn't flare over the subsequent period of a couple of months follow-up. Now, of the ones who did flare, you could recapture 96% of them over a couple of months. So no real harm done uh, getting back to where you were and recapturing them. So again, this is another, another study that confirms tapering can be successful, but cessation is asking for a flare, and uh, it speaks to whether your glass is half full or glass is half empty, you can stretch it to second monthly and 68% of patients will stay in good shape. But if you want to maintain them, 84% if you continue monthly and you don't taper. So they're your choices. Don't stop, taper if you want to by increasing the treatment duration rather than stopping medication altogether. And that's the take home message. Thanks very much. Hello everyone, I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now from ACR uh, 2022. And I'm here to talk to you today about um, an oral presentation on Monday. This was by Matthew Baker and colleagues. And this was on the reduction in RA interstitial lung disease risk with tofacitinib. So this was a retrospective study uh, using the Optum database. And um, they had 28,500 patients um, with rheumatoid arthritis who did not have pre-existing interstitial lung disease. Around 1,500 of those were treated uh, with uh, tofacitinib and the others were treated with other biologic um, agents. So, so they did a number of different analyses here. 
Um, first of all, they calculated crude incident um, rates um, for the development of interstitial lung disease in the patients on these biologic agents. And for those, they found that adalimumab had um, an incident rate of 3.43 per thousand patient years, rituximab of 6.15 per thousand patient years, uh, tocilizumab of 5.05 per thousand patient years, abatacept of 4.46 per thousand patient years, and tofacitinib of 1.47 per thousand patient years. And they adjusted this for multiple other variables, and they found that tofacitinib versus adalimumab had an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.31 for the development um, of interstitial uh, lung disease in patients with rheumatoid arthritis who are treated with um, biologic um, agents or uh, tofacitinib. The Dermatonin did a second analysis of, these, of this. They did a prevalent new user cohort design with propensity score matching. Um, and again, comparing uh, tofacitinib and adalimumab as the main um, analyses. And they found that the incident rate per thousand patient years of new ORA ILD was 1.48 for tofacitinib and 4.30 for adalimumab, giving an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.33. So this is interesting data. Um, it's uh, still very preliminary. It's a retrospective database-based study uh, with all the inherent limitations um, of that. Um, but it is encouraging to see some uh, potential evidence uh, for a drug which could prevent um, the development of interstitial lung disease in rheumatoid arthritis. We know that um, 8 to 10% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis develop this complication. And when they do develop it, the, the prognosis is not good at all. The, the median survival is three years after diagnosis um, of ORA ILD. So any agent that could potentially uh, prevent this uh, would be very uh, welcome. We will wait and see uh, what further uh, studies um, of JAK inhibitors in this area show. So remember uh, to check out Room Now for all the updates um, from ACR 2022. And you can follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. Hello, my name is Michelle Petrie, and this topic is life or organ-threatening lupus. What to do? Is there anything new? And I'm going to concentrate on two abstracts from the ACR meeting. Now, first, let's put this in perspective. There's lots of life-threatening or organ-threatening lupus out there. And of course, we have approaches. Now I put uh, SLE with catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome high up there because you know it can have as high as a 50% mortality. And I approach that with rituximab. I would love to use egolizumab if only I could get it approved in time to help the patient. But there's so many other things. There's rapidly progressive GN, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, myocarditis, recurrent lupus enteritis, you know, really severe thrombocytopenia. And for many of these, I'm gonna respond with rituximab or cyclophosphamide. But I have patients who fail rituximab or cyclophosphamide. 
And again, we've tried to find novel ways of treating them. For a long time at Hopkins, we were doing high dose cyclophosphamide you know, without stem cell rescue, although other centers did it with stem cell rescue. We haven't even had two of my patients who had a haploidentical bone marrow transplant. One went into a long-term remission. But now, you know, the hot thing is CAR-T. Now, CAR-T has lots of risks, and I don't want to minimize, of course, rituximab and cyclophosphamide have risks as well. CAR-T risks, though, are not familiar to rheumatologists, and so they include cytokine release syndrome, CAR-T cell-related encephalopathy, ICANS, just another term for the neurologic problems with CAR-T, the lymphodepleting regimens, the fludarabine and cyclophosphamide have their own toxicity. And then, of course, both short-term and long-term, we have to be worried about infections and hypogammaglobulinemia. And finally, of course, are the costs, right? We're talking about almost $500,000 per patient. You know, that would pay for a lot of rituximab and cyclophosphamide. So how did this get so much attention? It started with this N of one study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So we all saw it. And this was obviously a multi-system active lupus patient. And you can see within one month of getting the CAR-T, all the organs calmed down. And this patient was just left with some anti-DNA. So this patient had a good short-term outcome. Long-term, big question mark, right? So now presented at this meeting, but, but also at ULAR and also now published is the five patient series. In the early follow-up, these five patients met the lupus low disease activity state and Doris remission state. Although one patient had a SLE day of two which means to me that they didn't meet Doris remission. Now the B cells do reappear at day 100 and these good outcomes were maintained through day 100. The safety was remarkably good. There was mild cytokine release syndrome in just three. You know, I must say, you know, maybe they were just really very lucky because when you give CAR-T to larger numbers, I'm afraid we're going to see much more toxicity. But the big question is, where's the long-term follow-up? They haven't had a chance to figure that out. And you should ask yourself, what would you expect from something like this? What do you want the remission rate to be at five years? Should it be, you know, like way over 50% to justify something like this? So now I want to turn to APS, and this is a laboratory study, not a patient study, and it comes from the group of Max Koenig here at Hopkins. And now instead of CAR-T, he's talking about chimeric autoantigen T-cell receptor. What does this mean? We're not going to get rid of all the CD19 cells. This is going to be targeted just to those that make anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1. 
So he has reprogrammed T cells at the laboratory bench to be selective. And he's proven they're selective once he does this. He's only getting the anti-beta 2B cells. And then, you know, there's nothing to produce beta 2 GP1. So he calls this precision cellular immunotherapy. And remember, the strong rationale here is to avoid depleting all B cells to limit the infection risk because people with lupus, one of their major causes of death is infection. So he's shown that at least on the laboratory bench, he can treat autoimmunity without impairing the protective part of the immune system. Now, of course, there are limitations, aren't there? We have to prove that this will work in vivo. And in a patient series, not only must it prevent thrombosis, but it must eliminate the need for anticoagulation. Because you know, in your APS patients and mine, not only do we have the problem of recurrent thrombosis, but we have the problem that these patients really need warfarin. The DOAC trials have shown that DOACs are inferior to warfarin and they are at risk of bleeding. So to conclude, CAR-T is hot right now, but I've been around so long, I've seen lots of other things be hot for lupus and then not pan out. And I would include total nodal irradiation, but even the work that I did on high-dose cyclophosphamide, because when we had the control group of NIH cyclophosphamide, with long-term follow-up, both groups were the same. But I'm very enthusiastic about precision cellular immunotherapy, right? You know, for other diseases as well, where there's just, you know, one thing that went wrong, whether that's, you know, hyperthyroidism or myasthenia gravis or pemphigus, but for things like antiphospholipid syndrome, wow. Now, you know, maybe lupus is too complicated for precision cellular immunotherapy, and if that's the case, then remember, I'm not going to be enthusiastic about CAR-T until I see the five-year durability. Thank you for listening. Please remember that Room Now has been there for you at the ACR meeting, but it's going to be there for you every single week. <laughs>